Detail is God in this world. If you can be more detailed than everyone else, then you'll have a leg up on everyone. So aspiring producers, aspiring directors, it's detail. You, you do your work, do your research, find out every angle, find out every bit that you can about whatever you want to make or produce so that no one can come at you, you know, with something that you didn't think about. That, that's basically what I got. Krista Beck is an award-winning writer, producer and executive with a 30-plus year track record of producing films and TV series working with icons across all aspects of the entertainment industry. Chris recently moved from LA to Austin and as a result of a serendipitous connection we sat down to discuss his insights and experience across his inspiring career. We cover a lot of ground in this interview, but what really stood out to me was a combination of his willingness to take risks, it's like a startup mentality, um, to trust in his instinct, his fastidious attention to detail, a hard work ethic, and um, his brutal candor. These characteristics come across as Chris describes his early start working as a management trainee at Disney and the six years he spent building his production skills with Disney before moving to LA, where he expanded his experience, broadened his connections, and established a trusted reputation that led him to working with Academy Award-winning director James Cameron on his awe-inspiring series of underwater documentaries, The Last Mysteries of the Titanic and the groundbreaking documentary Expedition Bismarck, as well as Aliens of the Deep and Ghosts of the Abyss. Hearing Chris deconstruct what producers actually do, it's no surprise that in 2020, as COVID turned the world upside down, Chris partnered with James Cameron's younger brother, John, to pivot his human health organisation into a COVID-19 PPE and testing company. During that time, Chris oversaw all the PPE and testing protocols in over 1,500 productions for A-list actors, film and TV studios and streaming companies. I hope you're entertained and engaged by the standards, the stories, and the production magic of Chris DeBeck. Chris, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you. Uh, it's wonderful to be sitting here face-to-face with someone doing an interview yeah. in Austin, Texas. <laughs> yeah, especially after the pandemic. Huh? Yeah, I know. There's been big changes for all of us. I, mean, yeah. I believe you moved here uh, early January from LA, was yep, it? Yep, Los Angeles. I lived in Los Angeles for 28 years. Wow. And I moved here in October, November from New York. Oh, wow. <laughs> After 11 years there. So there's a real change. Okay. Um, for everyone. But everyone yeah. I meet here, I seem to say, hey, um, where are you from? And it's like LA, San Francisco, New York. Yeah. It's crazy. So, Texas seems to be the uh, migration state. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. Uh, Lone Star State. Maybe, maybe it should actually break away from. <laughs> we'll see what happens yeah, yeah, the next exactly. lecture. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. got two years to look at that one. <laughs> okay, well let's let's kick in um, to this this podcast. Um, the 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 thrust of doing this is to understand where serendipity has played a part in your life, right? And you've certainly had a very interesting, a few, yeah. very interesting journey. Yeah. So I'd love to start with when I went back and looked at your education. You went to Penn State and you were studying hotel and restaurant management. <laughs> Yeah. But you ended up in Hollywood in, in production, and I'm just going, where did it all go wrong? Uh, or right. <laughs> oh, right. Depending on how you look at it. <laughs> yeah. I try to look at the, the positive, yeah, of course. Yeah. But it's a non interesting one, because um, that probably wasn't the trajectory you were on no, at that time. No, it wasn't, no. So could you maybe just go back and talk us through where the linear sort of journey took off from that point? Um, I'm a kid from Pennsylvania trying to find my way and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. So, uh, 
I went to uh, the Penn State local campus and I took uh, hotel restaurant management. Um, and I found I had a real knack for it. Um, I liked working with people and I was a foodie. So, um, you know, I moved up quickly and uh, I became the president of the Hotel Restaurant Management Society while at Penn State. And then Disney came to the campus and interviewed for internship programs. Mm-hmm. So uh, luckily, I was one of three out of 300 applicants that got chosen to be in the Walt Disney World College program, 1989. Yeah, it dates me, but whatever. Uh, so that was, um, so I got accepted. And then I went down to Orlando, Florida, and I worked at Captain Cook's Ice Cream Shop. I was dipping Healthy. ice cream at Polynesian Resort. Yeah. Good and good for the diet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, you know, who cares? I was yeah. young. Um, so I did that. I did three months of the internship. Uh, you know, we stayed at a place called Snow White Village, which was, was basically 40, tra- it was a trailer park for college kids. Wow. Uh, you can imagine what party was central. on there. Party yeah. central. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I did the internship for three months and I did a really good job. And my supervisor, he, um, he offered me a, position in the management training program. Now at Disney, it's kind of like joining the army or the military. You sign a four-year deal. And uh, during those four years, uh, you're going to work in a different department every three months Mm -hmm. so that Disney can train you in their management process. For a young kid, college kid like me, that was a wonderful opportunity. Was that out of the ordinary? I mean, I would have thought that a lot of these programs where they bring in en masse lots of students to do these internships and these opportunities, they don't really sign them up to the management training. There must no. be something that you stood out. In yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I, you know, my experience at Penn State, I, I was a young leader mm-hmm. and uh, they, some, you know, my manager saw that. So he offered me the opportunity. It's also Disney's way of cheap labor <laughs> because, right. you know, that, that's the way, you know, they lure you in basically mm-hmm. is uh, giving you all these wonderful opportunities, but you make, you know, it's minimum wage and you live with like six people and, you know, anyway, I mean, it was a good opportunity. And you decided to take this rather than go back to Penn State. Yeah, well, uh, I had such a good time on the internship program. I kind of felt, thought it was just an extension of that, but I was very wrong. Not quite. So, Not what, quite. so what happened in, in terms of that? So, uh, um, so I started the management training program, and it was a little different. Um, I had to do 40 hours of work and then 20 hours of school. Um, so Disney has what they call Disney University. And uh, they offered, they basically said, I was a junior and they were going to pay for the rest of my education so I could get my bachelor's degree. And that was still, that was still the Penn State. Still Penn State. So they were cool with it. Oh yeah. Well, uh, many, many universities around the country have uh, deals similar to uh, work with Disney. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, you know, Disney, you can still get a a degree from your original university. You just do it in Florida. Mm -hmm. That's all. Well, so it's almost like an alternative management consultancy. Sure. You're just there and who would have thought that Disney who would have, has yeah. that sort of program? Well, Disney does, has a great program. I mean, they do this with international students. They do it with uh, domestic students. They do it with everybody. And that's how they, Disney's able to find such great talent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they offer a lot of opportunity. And during that time, um, and through sort of education, was there anyone you were looking to as a mentor or a guide to, or were you making these decisions yourself? I was just making these decisions myself. Uh-huh. Yeah. There was no one else in my life that could actually help make those decisions except me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were, they were pretty simple ones. You know, when they offered me the training program, I said, yes, and uh-huh. it was a good opportunity. And still living on 
this at the same site? No, they moved us out. You know, I had to go get an apartment and with real roommates and real bills and all that stuff. So it was a real job. So real shift and focus from being at university to then suddenly in the very much so yeah very much so i mean you know when you're in the internship program it's a little different than having a real job and trying to you know go to school 20 hours a week and then work 40 hours a week mm-hmm. so for me uh it was a transition that i didn't do very well at because i've heard you talk about the fact that you walked away from one of the first stuff uh, well walking is away it, is a is, is an interesting <laughs> way to put yeah. it I said it politely yeah um so as the president of the HRIM Society at Penn State, um, I was able to create manuals and create structure and create programs. We did catering for alumni. We did a lot of different things. And um, the internship program is very different than the management training program. So once I entered the management training program, as I said earlier, they put you uh, every three months you work in a different division. So I started working as a busboy. I was at the Living Seas at Epcot Center. And that was fun. You know, I mean, I had restaurant experience, so it was okay. I mean, even though, you know, I, I had better restaurant experience than being a busboy, I, I, I figured this is what I have to do. This is what we have to learn. So uh, I did that. Just a, yeah. an aside, for people that are listening outside the U.S., busboy? Yeah. Oh, um, I would, in a restaurant, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not a waiter. I would be, I'd follow the waiter behind the waiter and clean up the dishes, <laughs> the dirty dishes off the <laughs> tables. Okay. So that's what a busboy does. Um, and then uh, I was having some problems with management because I was a bit of a free thinker. And Disney wants you to follow the rules. Disney wants to, they have a guidebook that you have to follow. And you know, I was a little bit of a rebel. So I wasn't doing well with following all their rules. <laughs> so uh, one of my managers didn't really appreciate that. So they sent me over to the employee cafeteria dish room at Disney MGM Studios. Now, the studio hadn't opened up yet. So this was 89, 90. I think it was 89. So now I uh, I was sent down, which I considered to be a, you know, it wasn't a demotion because I was it was the same program. But, you know, I was now working as a, uh, you know, in the employee cafeteria dish room, uh, midnight shift. So now I'm washing dishes for the employees. And again, you know, being a cocky guy like I was, you know, I was pissed off to say the least. So, you know, I would spend my nights, you know, just especially at midnight cursing. You know, I, you know, I, Disney, I hate Disney and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then it was one night, I don't know, maybe around one or two a.m. I'm, I'm having a, one of my moods and, uh, a lady comes in. And, you know, well, first of all, you know, I, I think I'm alone. I don't think there's any, you know, I looked in the kitchen, I looked in the cafeteria, I didn't see anybody. So I'm just doing my job, mopping floors and suds. Um, and then uh, I'm cursing my, you know, I'm, I'm just saying a lot of stupid things. And then uh, I see a tray come in with food and I'm like, oh my God, somebody's here. And then I go outside and, and I look and there's this lovely young lady and she's just laughing at me because, you know, I, I'm just... I'm acting like a dumbass. And uh, she goes, is everything okay? I said, well, not really. And then I, for some reason, I just started sharing my story with this woman. And she's like, well, Chris, you should come work with us. Um, I work in a department called Film and Tape. And uh, we have a cross-utilization program, which means that if you can get your supervisors to sign off, your next three months can be with us. And I was very excited. I thought, oh, my God, you know, anything to get out of this freaking dish room. Now, I had no idea what film and tape was. 
when she said that, I it definitely uh, didn't involve washing dishes. No, it didn't. Involve, yeah, exactly. I actually thought I was going to be selling 35 millimeter film and VHS tapes in the kiosks at the Magic Kingdom. That's what I thought film and tape meant. So I was like, all right, yeah, cool. Well, I can do sales. No problem. I didn't tell her that because, you know, I just, I just said yes and, you know, let it go. So next day she comes in, hands me the paperwork, and then I go and see my supervisor. And I hand my paperwork to the supervisor, and this woman didn't even bother looking at the paperwork. She just looks at me dead in the eye and says, no. And I'm like, but, you know, uh, this will be a good thing for me, and, you know, I, I, you know I've been having some problems. And, and she goes, Chris, I need every body I can get because we're opening up a studio. And that really pissed me off because now all of a sudden I'm a slab of meat. You know, I'm, I'm not a guy trying to make it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a worker. So um, I literally took off my little paper hat and my apron and my name tag and I slammed it down the counter. I said, F you, I quit because I just I was over this. I just didn't want to be there anymore. And as I'm walking out, she says, don't use us as your stepping stone. I had absolutely no idea what that meant. You know, again, I'm a 19, 20 year old kid and no idea. So, um, I'm shaking. I'm ner- I'm scared. I'm like, oh my God, I signed a four year. Do you think she was di- being her department or Disney? She was Disney. Yeah. But do you think she was, when you were saying stepping stone, do you think she was referring to the fact that you were walking away from her within Disney to sort of like go further or do you think? Well, she knew what film and tape meant. So she, yeah. And you, because didn't, every, I didn't, she, I had no idea. <laughs> See all the, all the kids working down there, all, all, well, employees, everybody Probably wanted to work. Yeah. yeah. It was the most desirable job in the studio. Yeah. I mean, they all wanted to work in film and television and uh, she knew what it was, but I didn't anyway. So I, I go back to my apartment with my seven roommates. And I call the lady that gave me the application and I told her what happened. And she says, Chris, relax, calm down. Um, why don't you come in the next day and talk to my boss? I said, okay, great. I appreciate that. So the next day I, I go on the back lot and there's a little trailer, like way in the back. They're still pulling up palm trees and plowing, you know, making roads and, you know, all this stuff. So I go in there and uh, she tells me to sit down. And when the door opens, my boss will call you in and you go talk to him. I said, okay, great. So I'm sitting there and then the door opens and I hear literally, it sounds like a voice of God. You know, he's like, come in young man. And, uh, I go in and sitting behind the desk is is an older gentleman, probably late sixties, early seventies. And, uh, if anyone has ever seen the movie, Oh God with George Burns and John Denver, swear to God, the guy, you know, he just, he looked like George Burns and he was much taller though. So um, he gestures for me to sit down, and then he crosses his arms and says, tell me a story. And I I was just like, uh, okay. Um, so I began telling him, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania, blah, 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 and college and Disney. And, and then I, I got to the point where, you know, uh, and she said to me, don't use her as a stepping stone. And, and I said, sir, I don't know what that means. I, I have no idea what she was talking about, but I'm here and um, I just don't know what to do. So he's nodding and he's kind of, you know, he's wearing these big, thick glasses, like Coke bottle glasses. Uh, if anyone in the knows who Lou Wasserman was, Lou Wasserman was a big Hollywood guy. He had the big square, thick glasses. So uh, he has his arms crossed, and then he he takes his glasses off, puts them on the desk, and he points his bony finger at me and says, F them. You work for me now. And 
I was like, okay, great. <laughs> I had no idea what was going on other than, all right, I think I got a job. That's good. Uh, so he told me to go and talk to his assistant and then she'll take care of it. I said, okay, great. So I go outside and I, I tell, you know, the lady what he said, and she was very happy to hear that. And then, uh, she, now it was late eighties, early nineties. So they were computers, but they were really, really big computers, big monitors. So she's typing on, on the computer and she goes, Oh no. And I'm like, what? And she says, you've been red flagged. And I'm like, red flagged. What's that mean? She goes, well, unfortunately, Chris, you are no longer allowed to work for Disney. So you're off the management trainee program. I was off everything. I was fired. I, I quit, but that manager who I pissed off. That was a red flag. Yeah. She red flagged me. So, wow. uh, and, and, uh, the assistant was telling, was said, Chris, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. I've got to, I got to work this out, but tomorrow morning, I want you to report to bungalow five and, uh, at 9 a.m. and you'll start work and see this girl, Sally Hinkle. So I'm like, okay, great. So the next day, uh, I go to bungalow five and it, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. It was all this bustling and activity and there are cases and equipment and cameras and, you know, uh, golf carts coming in and out. And you're saying, where's the kiosk? I, yeah, I didn't know what I was like. I have no idea what this is. So I go and find Sally Hinkle and, uh, Sally tells me, uh, she goes, okay, um, I, we need to load these coolers and put these drinks and ice and this and that. So basically, if anyone knows what craft service was, it turns out that I was the assistant to the craft service girl, Sally. But I didn't know that. So I was just following her instructions, you know, and I, I was a tall strapping guy. So, you know, I could lift the heavy things and the bags of ice and the coolers full of drinks and et cetera, et cetera. So the whole day, uh, that's what we were doing. We we're, you know, delivering coolers with uh, ice and drinks and coffee and food and to all these different uh, locations all around the theme park because Disney MGM was opening up and we had crews, uh, camera crews with doing interviews and interviewing celebrities and all this stuff. And, and it was fascinating to me. But Disney itself yeah. was open as a... Oh, the park was open. Was yeah, yeah. But, but Disney was MGM the was... The, the this was the studios. the pre-opening for yeah. the studio. When people walk around the lot. Yeah. 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 There was no guests in, in the studio at that time. It was just our crews. We had like 20 crews rolling around doing interviews of all kinds of things. So... um uh, you know, we finished the day and, you know, I'm exhausted and tired and sweaty and, but it felt great. It was fun. So we're in the production office and I ask Sally, I say, Sally, so what do you guys, are, what do you guys do here? And she looked at me and said, what do you mean? She goes, well, I mean, I, I, I assume you're shooting something, right? And, and she looks, she's like, Chris, don't you know what you're doing? I said, I have no idea. And she laughs and she goes, well, Chris, uh, you're working on the two hour NBC television special for the grand opening of Disney MGM studios. And I'm like, really? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, Hmm. Okay. That was my first job. And that was it. That was it. So I'm intrigued. What do you think it was when, and it's an interesting question to be thrown at you in your first interview with someone, the sky wasn't Jim, Jim Washburn. Yeah. Washburn. Jim, Jim was the guy. Yeah. What do you think it was that you said to him that made him just so engaged and hire you? Um, I was honest. Mm -hmm. I was real. And mm -hmm. uh, I had uh, a fire in my belly that, you know, I wanted just to please, I wanted to do a good job. I didn't mean to, you know, 
basically do it, said what I said to that to the lady at the uh, cafeteria, but uh, he wanted a lot of um, people with energy that that would do a good job. Um, He was basically sent by Michael Eisner to open the studio. He was the boss of all the bosses. I had no idea. I only learned that, you know, in the production office later, you know, later in the week, um, the production coordinator D she, she said, Chris, how did you get this job? Because you know, everybody wants to work at the studio. And the fact that you weren't on the management trainee program. Yeah. 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 And well, here's the thing is there was all film and TV people. Mm -hmm. They didn't know what the theme park was. They didn't care. They didn't know any of that stuff. This wasn't their world. And I wasn't there. I wasn't in their world and just to know now. And then D says to me, Chris, how'd you get this job? I said, well, I met with Jim Washburn and he hired me. And you could hear a pin drop in the production office. So, And she goes, you actually met Jim Washburn? I said, yeah. Really? I said, yeah. And she goes, oh, okay. And then I said to D, well, who is he? And she said, well, Chris, he was sent by Mike Eisner to open the studio. So he's everybody's boss. I'm like, wow. That's cool. <laughs> it's pretty incredible to think back that you even were given a, an audience with them. Yeah. Like why? Because normally in something like that, you're on a, in the in the midst of a yeah. production. Uh, well, someone I, I, that would have been yeah. in the production department would have interviewed you and decided to hire Well, again, I, I had no idea what was going on. So for me, it, this was just however they uh-huh. did it. So, yeah. And Dee said to me later, she goes, you're, you're very lucky and uh-huh. keep going. So I was like, okay. Wow. So... Your early years, that set you on a trajectory off the... A little bit. Sure, yeah. Well, I was no longer a Disney employee. I actually lost everything. So what were you? You Just Uh, freelance, yeah. But they set me up as a a temporary employee Mm -hmm. within the freelance area at Film and Tape. I mean, there were there's a lot of different categories. So I was still able to work for Disney, even though I was fired from Disney. And you walked away from Penn. I walked away from Penn State. Yeah, I, I actually, I don't have a degree. I never graduated. So what went through your head at that time when you were? Well, for me, it was like, I, I felt like I had nowhere else. To, I didn't want to go back to Pennsylvania. And I just, I had to make the best out of what I was given. And luckily for me, you know, um, I was a smart kid. And, you know, I, I realized that this could be an opportunity if I chose it. Uh-huh. And, you know, I chose it. I've heard you talk about production and describing it as where creativity and economics meet. What was it in those early years that led you to gain that insight? Were you just thrust into... Well, doing, you know, doing craft service is um, basically, (laughs) I'm in charge of my own department. And craft service uh, is providing beverages and drinks and food and snacks and just keeping the crews happy and so that they have, they feel like they're taken care of throughout Mm -hmm. the day. Um, and Florida's are very hot. You know, it's like Texas. You know, it's it's very hot, muggy. So we had to provide a lot of different uh, beverages and water just to keep everybody going. But I I took it the step farther because of my experience in cooking and, and as a sous chef and working at Penn State and going to Penn State. Um, I would go out and buy fresh breads at like 4 a.m. I would go and get the fresh fruits at the farmer's market. I would go home and I bake cookies and I would, you know, I would cut it all up and make it get, put a great presentation. I mean, I did one commercial. It was for my little pony and the producer was uh, very adamant. He's like, you have $200 a day and don't go over. And he was like yelling at me. I'm like, okay, okay. 
So um, the first day of shooting, I I I had this big spread. I mean, it was like it looked like a buffet at a five star hotel. And the producer comes in and he starts screaming. He's like, "All right, where's Chris? Where's that craft service kid? I need to talk to him. Oh my god!" Uh. You know, and he he grabs me and says, "What is all this? I mean, this? How much money did you spend? I told you you only had a, you know X amount of dollars to spend." I said, "Yeah, I know. Uh, I, I haven't spent it all yet. I still have stuff this afternoon, and I have all the money for the rest of the week." And he goes, "Well, how wh- how were you able to do this?" I'm like, "Well, I made a lot of deals, and you know, I went to the bakery and I told them I'm going to be spending you know so much money over the course of six weeks or two weeks. I don't know." Um, and then, you know, I, I baked all these and I found a deal on these and I went to the farmer's market and I talked to the uh, farmers and they, they're going to give me a deal on this. So, you know, I still have about, you know, $40 left just for today. And he looked at me and goes, Hmm. Okay. All right. Keep going, (laughs) but don't go over. I'm like, okay, great. So during that time, I heard you talk about an encounter with someone called Martin Baker? Martin Baker, yes. He's a sounded when I've heard you talk about it before is quite a serendipitous moment. Um, um it changed my the course. It, it would, you know, the Jim Washburn meeting sent me in one di- and yeah. sent me in the direction. But then the Martin Baker meeting continued it. So Martin Baker was uh Jim Henson's producer, you know, Kermit oh, the yeah. Frog, Miss Piggy. Yeah, the Muppets, yeah. yeah, I got to work with the Muppets, and that was amazing. <laughs> it was an amazing experience. So, um, it's not every day you meet someone that's, uh, got to meet Miss Piggy and Kermit. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, I had gone to Matt, uh, Matt Seitz was, uh, like my boss at mm-hmm. the studio. And I said to Matt, this is when you're still in film and TV. I'm still at Disney. Yeah. I'm at Disney. It's about, I'm at, I'm maybe a year and a half now. Yeah, so post the launch of the, studio. yeah, post the launch. Um, I've done Christmas parades. I've done Easter parades. I did, I did a lot of different, uh, shows as craft service mm-hmm. and I did a great job. Everybody loved me and I came in on budget and I was cheap. You know, at that point I made like 50 bucks a day. That's for 12 or more hours. And it's not like hourly. It's literally, if I work 17 hours, I got paid 50 bucks. Um, it was a different time. So um, I went to Matt Seitz, who was running the, who was my boss. And he, I said, Matt, I don't want to, you know, I heard the Muppets are coming into town and I want to really want to work on the show, but I don't want to do craft service. Is there anything else I can do? And Matt said, well, Chris, I'll tell you what, I'll send you up with the producer, Martin. We're going to be hiring a lot of people. You'll, I'm sure you'll get a job on it, but you'll have to talk to Martin. Question them. Muppets were they? They weren't part Disney. Though. They were start. Actually, this is when Jim Henson and uh, Michael Eisner were trying to make a deal. Uh-huh. That yeah, I, Disney wanted to buy the Muppets. This was uh, 91, 92, something uh-huh. like that. Uh, okay. So this was kind of their first off show. Uh, unfortunately, Jim Henson passed away several months later. But uh, this is what they were trying to do. So um, so Matt introduces you know he sets me up i'm the first interview with martin baker now martin is from london and he's jim henson's uh, producing partner for years and years and years and uh you know i go into the office and i'm jumping out of my seat saying martin i want to work on the muppets i love the muppets i grew up with the muppets i watch them after school every day you know yada yada and uh, martin you know he appreciates the energy that i had uh martin asked me he's like chris where do you see yourself in the next 10 years and that was a interesting question because i didn't even think that far because yeah. <laughs> I, I was just trying to get you know day by day week by week kind of do job by job so i said to martin honest answer i have no idea 
Um, to be honest, I'm just learning this business and I, I just, I, I really don't know. I'd like to learn as much as I can. I'd like to try different things, but I have no idea. And he, he was like, okay, well, listen, we're going to be hiring a lot of local people. So I'm going to hire you as a, like a floater PA. And that, and he explained that the floater PA will work uh, in different departments wherever they need the help. And in this case, he's like, you know, we're shooting, you know, we're here for 10 weeks. So I'll, you know, I'll have you work in one department for a week or 10 days or two weeks. And then we'll just flip you around to different departments like wardrobe, grip, electric camera, locations, production office, stuff like that. And then he said at the, the end of your, uh, you know, tenure on the show, come back and tell me what you think. Tell me where you want to go. And at that point, all I heard was you're hired. And I didn't really pay attention. I'm like, yeah, okay, great. Whatever you say, boss. Yeah, I'm good. So I worked 10, you know, roughly Still eight, 50 bucks a day. Yeah. Uh, no, I actually got a raise. I think it was 75. Ah, wow. Very exciting. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I did the job and, um, I met Kevin clash. He was a really nice guy. And, you know, he, uh, I had Kermit, you know, Kevin, I was sweeping the stage one night late and, uh, Kevin clash was coming out of the dressing room, just finishing up. And I was, you know, they have, uh, these poles, pegs, they call them where they put the puppets on the pegs. So I'm sweeping the stage and I'm just staring at like Kermit and Miss Piggy. And I'm just like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. I was so excited. Uh, and Kevin, uh, Kevin comes out and he's looking at me, looking at, you know, enamored with the puppets. And, uh, Kevin goes, do you want to try it on? I, I say, excuse me. He's like, and he goes over and he literally grabs Kermit off the peg and says, here, put your arm like this. And I'm shaking. I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God. I'm going to have Kermit the frog on my arm. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, just put it up. So he told me what to do. And it had some mechanisms in the head and, you know, for the eyes and the mouth and such. And he was showing me how to, how to puppeteer. I mean, you know, simple, but, uh, and I, I had Kermit on my arm and that, that was a ex very exciting time for me. Can you imagine? If you, those have been days when you had mobile phones with you. And oh, I would have been selfieing the shit out of that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Figging on one arm. <laughs> yep. Yep. I would have done it all. But, uh, so let's, uh, go forward to the end of the show. Um, mm -hmm. I end up driving Jim Henson and the director to the airport. Martin calls me into his office. It's my last day. Martin says, Chris, so you've done, you know, a great job. I've heard very good things. Uh, so what do you think you want to do in, you know, for the next 10 years? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? I said, Martin, I want to do what you do. And he looks at me and goes, Chris, you never spent any time with me. You don't know what I do. And I said, oh, yes, I do. Anyone that has the power to give a kid like me the break you gave, that's what I want to do. So he gave me instructions. He's so good. question for, go ahead with that. You must have been thinking all these 10 weeks, what am I going to say? And as you were going through this, it must have been thought. Actually, to be honest, I was not. So you, It didn't even cross my mind. So this was just... Sort of it was an crazy. instant thing that I just thought oh, of when, right when I went to his office. Wow. Because when, when I got there, I did think about it for 30 seconds, mm. but then I realized what it was. Mm. So I, I said to him, I want to do what you do. So he said, for the next 10 years... You're going to do what you did here, but you're going to do it on a film, a TV show, a commercial, a music video, um, documentary, feature, you know, the whole thing. 
Mm-hmm. He's like, I, and I want you to work in every department. I want you to work on special effects. I want you to work in wardrobe. I want you to work in grip, electric, camera, and just the list all the departments in a you know TV or movie, and that's what I want you to do. And I was like, okay, great. I'm going to do that because I wanted to be a producer. With someone saying that's what you're going to do, what was your um, there's the there's the the direction and the goal, and then there's the execution and the action that has to be taken. What was your reaction to? Well, where do I start? Well, see, I had already been working a year and a half, and I've done you know in that year and a half, I worked on like twenty or thirty different projects, all doing craft service, but building relationships, building relationships. Yeah, so I, I started learning how to network. I learned how to get jobs. I learned how to do a budget because I you know I was given money to go buy food, so I had to keep a budget. So I, I learned all that during that year and a half. Mm-hmm. So Martin telling me this, I just figured that it was exactly what I was doing now, just having to do it in a bigger scale. Uh-huh. So what was the first step after that? Um, and- well, um, first step, I was at Disney for six years. So I spent another, you know, four and a half years and, you know, networking and doing as he said. Doing this, as he said. I worked on shows like uh, I did a soap opera called Santa Barbara. I was the assistant to Leslie Bellsberg on the movie Oscar. And she was the producer for, uh, you know, uh, John Landis. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, Oscar was with Sylvester Stallone. And then uh, I worked, I mean, I literally would have to look at my resumes in order to tell you what I worked on. So you were just soaking up experience. Sponge. sponge. Yes, I was a sponge. Mm-hmm. And was there anything in those early years that you can look back on and think, this is what helped me succeed and be hired by people and build their trust? Um, well, for me, my personality, mm-hmm. because I, I, was, uh, I was still a, a kid at heart. Oh, I was, well, I was still a kid. I was in my 20s. Uh, and then I also had a really good attitude. So for me, it was attitude and acceptance. Mm-hmm. Those two words mm-hmm. kept me going because... You have to, in this business, to survive and thrive, you have to accept the job you have and have a good attitude while doing it. Unless it's washing dishes at midnight. Well, yeah. I I mean, but, you know, in production, I had to do a lot of very strange jobs. Like, I I was working in the art department on a series called Fortune Hunter for Fox. And I found myself digging a shallow grave at 3 a.m. in a cemetery. And I was with two other guys. We were swing gang. I was with two other guys. They had to go, they went out to go get some food. So I'm left alone, literally in a grave up to my, almost up to my neck. And I I hear the owls and and the nighttime, just the night noise of a cemetery. And I'm just like, what the hell am I doing here? (laughs) It was pretty funny. Interesting. So across all those experiences, you were with it and still working within the sort of the Disney framework uh, most of the sh- yeah during the six years i i worked on i would say 95 percent of those projects were all disney related mm-hmm. it, it being that productions would come in and use the studio mm-hmm. and then hire local people now i did do one production during those disney years that i i went to north carolina and that was the crow with brandon oh Lane. my goodness yeah. yeah i was on i was there when uh brandon lee was killed Oh my goodness, that must have been a, a very traumatic experience. It was traumatic for everybody to have uh, an actor, you know, die on set like that is uh, is un, unfathomable. Yeah, and the fact that it still happens in today with um, the recent 
Oh, the rust, the alcohol yeah, thing. Yeah, that that was a tragedy. That must have brought that right back to you. Um, you know what's funny is I, I had a, like the Hollywood Reporter and Variety. I had a bunch of people reach out to me asking oh. me if I would comment on that, and I refused. I said I, I can't comment on some. I wasn't there. Yeah. I don't know what happened. I mean, I can guess, but there are so many. There were so many people guessing about what happened on Rust mm-hmm. that, as a producer now and doing what I did with the Crow and all the experiences I've had since then. I deduced, you know, how it would have gone down. Mm. And um, it it was a tragedy no matter what you do. What what I didn't understand was that in the the news reported that they were firing live rounds at shooting at cans and mm. doing target practice and stuff like a day or two before or, or while they're shooting. I'm like, who in the world would have done that? Mm. I mean, when we did the crow, we locked up all the ammunition, all the guns at the end of each day, and that trailer drove away. We didn't want it. There was no guns on set. None of that shit. So that was probably the one thing that disturbed me the most. Yeah. And also, just looking back, that must be what, 94, 93, maybe? Uh, the Crow was 98. Was it 98? 97, 98. So even then, I mean, okay. 96. Early, early days. Into, early days, yeah. But way before social media. Can you imagine the internet memes and the conspiracy theories. Oh, yeah. Given what was... Well, there were. Time there were conspiracy Yeah, there were conspiracy theories. Related to Bruce and the, the Chinese. Yeah. Um, um, the conspiracy yeah. area of the day was that the the Chinese government yeah. did that because, you know, they didn't want, um, you know, Brandon to be as powerful as his father was. But that was completely insane. It was stupid. It wasn't that. It was It was an accident, pure and simple. Okay, I mean, good done rabbit hole with that, but you know, let's let's get back on track. That see, so at that point, you're still young, you're learning. It would be very easy for someone that's been gaining that experience within the sort of the safe, to a degree, the safe confines of Disney and yep. and building a network. You took the bold decision to leave and move to LA. Um, I felt like I hit a, a ceiling while I was at Disney. I mean, I moved up to a production coordinator status. And, uh, in Florida, I mean, I, I didn't just, I didn't see myself as moving up because a lot of productions would start in LA or New York or somewhere else Mm -hmm. and then come to Florida. So most of the time they had their full crew and they just needed, you know, local Floridians that knew the area that knew the crew to coordinate the thing, the projects they had. I wanted to actually be on the show when it first started, when it was first conceived, because again, now, now I have six years of experience. Yeah. Maybe I've done a hundred different projects and I'm still have Martin Baker's thought mm-hmm. in my head. And I'm like, now I, I need to get on them in the beginning. So I had some friends. I made friends in Los Angeles and I, I decided to come out to LA and I think it was, uh, 96. I think I moved in 97 and, uh, I, you know, surfed on, you know, couch surfed on friends in friends' apartments until I got my first job. And my first job in LA, ironically enough, was with the Muppets. Ah. Mr. Willoughby's Christmas tree. Through the connection that you Through had. the connections I had with Martin. That's yes. wonderful. Now, at this time, I had six years of experience and I was a production coordinator. And where were they shooting? Uh, LA, Raleigh Studios in Los Angeles off Melrose. Um, at this point, I had six years of experience as a coordinator, but when I went in, you know, the ladies like Chris, you know, Martin told me I need to hire you, mm-hmm. but all I have is PA jobs, you know, and it seems like you're a coordinator now. I said, no, I'll take the PA job. And, a, and PA for people that don't really. Production assistant. Production assistant. Like a yeah. gopher. Yeah. Driver. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, that's all I have available. And I said, I'll take it. 
because I need to learn LA. I don't know anything about Los Angeles. So I figured the best way to learn LA was to be a driver. Mm -hmm. So I went and picked up things, picked up wardrobe, picked up props, picked up whatever they needed. And that's how I learned Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And then the next job I got was as a coordinator. And then that progression to the term that's often used as line producer. Yeah. Where were you in the progression? Well, so I was a production supervisor. From coordinator, I moved to production supervisor. Now, production supervisor is a is a, like a or a production manager that's not in the union. I'm not DGA. Mm. So I couldn't be a DGA production manager, but I was a production supervisor working with a DGA. We, yeah, was, from them. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much the same thing. Um, I took a job in Cambodia. I, I did a movie called City of Ghosts with Matt Dillon. Matt, yeah. And uh, I, I was a production supervisor. Was he a, What's that? He was a con man, wasn't he? Was yeah, he was yeah. a con man. Yeah, insurance. Yeah. Insurance fraud. <laughs> it was with uh, Jimmy Kahn, Gerard Depardieu, and Natasha Michael Hong. And um, so I was a production supervisor, and uh, we could do an entire podcast on the Cambodia experience. Yeah, I can imagine, because then... <laughs> I mean, Cambodia back then. Yeah, but in 1999, 2000. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was in Cambodia. And then we, uh, let's see, five months Cambodia, four weeks Thailand, uh, Bangkok specifically. And um, I mean, it was the best and worst experience of my life. I ended up losing about 25 pounds because we got, most of the crew got amoebic dysentery. Uh-huh. Uh, we had to have porta potties on set just in case. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it was terrible. But some of the locations we shot at were were. Amazing. You think COVID was bad? <laughs> yeah, you think COVID was bad? Yeah, and that COVID's nothing compared to what that was. I'm going back to the fact that you had in the back of your head Martin Baker saying you got to do this for ten years. Over the those period, I mean, like looking at your IMDb, you've worked on some pretty amazing films and great experience. Did you just embrace them? On the basis of I'm prepared to take anything, go down the we say the road less traveled because of trust in the process that would take you somewhere where you need to be, or were you more methodical in terms of seeking out projects, individuals? How did you balance that? Well, by this time, I, you know, I, I'm now let's say I have ten years in, and I pick up things fast, and you know, because I'm a sponge, I learned about opportunity. I learned about interviewing for jobs, and I started choosing jobs. I, I didn't want to go and just do some random thing. Um, I interviewed for very specific movies, very specific uh, roles um, throughout those years. You know, I, I was lucky. I, I, I was a production coordinator. I worked on a movie called Mad City with John Travolta, Dustin Hoffman. I did The Out-of-Towners with Goldie Hawn and Steve Martin. I did Devil's Advocate mm, yeah. with Keanu Reeves and Al Pacino. That and must be something else. That was amazing. Yeah. That was great. You know, we shot all the visual effects in L.A., uh, down in the uh, meat packing district of Los Angeles. So um, I, I was going after the big movies. I, that's what I wanted to do. And luckily, I was in the, the clique. Mm-hmm. I was in the group. I was with the cool kids. Because that's the thing. I think a lot of people, I mean, I've worked in advertising industry and I've worked with a whole ton of different production companies and making ads. And often you come across the same crew a lot of the time because directors and producers know they're trusted go-to people right. and they work with them for years and therefore it's they say it's a clique or click they'll say that's where my crew's going to be so if you're in that you're there but you've talked about being selecting the jobs that you do and being interviewed I, I don't suppose many people really understand what that process is of hiring people and putting people together for crews is it 
predominantly the core is the crew of people that the director and the producer trust. And then around it, you hire people or? Well, usually it's the producer that hires people. The director will say to the producer, hey, I want to bring on X, Y, and Z. Mm. You know, I'm bringing on all these people. And the producer will go and make deals with all those people. And then let's say a producer hires a production manager. Then the production manager is going to hire his people or her people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it's a, it's like a cascading of domino effect. It's where like, do unions come in? Because it, it, a lot of the U.S. isn't unionized <laughs> for the film and television industry is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why well, is that? Why is it unionized? Why is it still unionized? When, oh. Um, I know there's a, at the moment a lot of people fighting to get unions back into like Apple Store in New York just announced that they're trying oh, to Oh, that's a whole different kind of union. Yeah, that that's different. Um, we... Film and TV has the Screen Actors Guild, the Directors Guild, ah, so it's part of that. the Editors yeah. Union. They have uh, the Writers Guild, um, you know, the IA, the IATI. So, you know, a lot of the bigger uh, studio films, they have deals with all the unions. Mm -hmm. And uh, nine times out of ten, the people with the most experience are with the unions. And that's when you think back to the days when the writers went on strike. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> there was right. a bit of curveball at Hollywood. It was, but uh, a lot of studios were buying up scripts prior to the writers going on strike uh, because they were preparing. Uh, um, also, you saw an influx of uh, documentaries and reality TV, things that didn't have to work with writers and union such. Um, it was, it was, it hurt, not to say the least, but you know, there were ways around that. Okay. So could you, could we just, for you to define for people that maybe don't understand the industry, what a line producer is? Okay. So a line producer, um, in a budget, you have above the line and the above the line are actors, director, producer, writers, the creatives. Mm -hmm. Let's call it that. Below the line, you have the crew, the vendors, the insurance, the gear, the locations, everything it takes, the nuts and bolts it takes to make a movie. So the line between the creatives and the nuts and bolts is basically the job of the line producer. So I have to manage the creative while managing the nuts and bolts of making the movie or the TV show or whatever you're doing. Mm. Um, it's a, it's a very thankless job mm. and you have to straddle that line constantly with the creatives wanting to do more than you can afford, you know, to do in the budget. Mm. so um that's how that's what a line producer is so where is a sweet spot in the career trajectory of production um well that from a you can go any way you want with a line mm. as a line producer most of the time it's in finance most of the time it's in money logistics and just the the production of it some line producers move on to uh direct to write to produce to do whatever they want um, I've been lucky enough that I have experience in all areas. I've directed things. I've created TV shows. I've sold TV shows as an, ex uh, I did a scouting camp, the next Olympic hopeful for NBC. I was the creative executive producer on it. I created the show basically. Oh, is that what an executive producer is? Uh, executive producer in television yeah. is, is the creative, but an executive producer in film is the finance. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Okay. But then, you know, I'm learning over the years, like, for example, Devil's Advocate, the, the production manager we had on the movie was also the executive producer. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, again, maybe that's because of the money thing, but, you know, 
Yeah, it's also people's egos, and they they want more title. They want better titles. Uh-huh. For, for me, it just depends on on what's needed, and I'll do whatever they want. When I saw you being interviewed by Jennifer, um, also in the team business, obviously she talked a lot about your relationship to James and John Cameron. Yeah. Before we come to that, I'd like to just get your. Um, I mean, if you, the way you talk about your attitude to work, and you describe the about attitude and acceptance as a core part of, of success. A lot of working in production, certainly from what I've seen in working in the TV ad side, things can go wrong. All the will time. go wrong. Yes. Even where you don't expect them to. And yeah. that's what you have to expect, the unexpected. Yes. And it is all about solving gnarly problems and being, I'd probably say, agile um, and nimble and thinking on your feet. Um, but it's also about attitude to in go into situations like you've mentioned in Cambodia, you wouldn't expect to get some sort of dysentery and. Uh, oh no, and we that, did. We were try- We prepared were plan- as much were, as we okay, could. Okay, so you're planning for it. Oh so yeah. I suppose if this then comes to <laughs> we do research, preparing for, you know, having an attitude that embraces fear, um, acceptance that there will be some form of failure, um, embracing risk taking, planning for it. Do you think that those characteristics are core to uh, of helping you become a successful producer along the way? And would you say it's something that other aspiring producers have to think about in terms of their attitude to fear? And a hundred percent, yeah. A producer, you have to be jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. You have to have experience in pretty much every different, um, I don't know, experience, yeah, a job. Mm-hmm. I mean. I, in some cases, I had to be a carpenter. In some cases, I had to understand electricity. Mm-hmm. In other cases, I had to understand special effects and the, the inner workings of how do you make a, a sink work, you know, with water. And there's a hundred things that a producer should have some common knowledge of mm-hmm. because we have to troubleshoot. We're, you know, special effects. I uh, did a show once where I, I was the line producer and the special effects cor- uh, supervisor comes to me with their budget and their budget's like, you know, $200,000 more than it should be. And I luckily, because I had worked in special effects and I, even though I wasn't a lead, I was an assistant, I paid attention mm-hmm. and I asked the supervisors about budgets and I asked about this and I asked about that. So I learned enough. So when that supervisor came to me and said, you know, I need 200,000 more, I'm like, I went through his budget and I said, well, what's this and what's that? And, you know, I know we don't ha- need this. So I literally called him out on all of the, the shit that he was trying to pad the budget with. I wouldn't have known that unless I was paying attention and learning and understanding the, uh, the inner workings of each of these departments. And each department is its own trade. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn a lot of trades. Do you think that curiosity and being a curious individual and having a curious mind and having a, a strong degree of creativity are core to being a successful producer? Absolutely. Um, I believe, you know, a, a producer has to be always curious mm-hmm. because that's the only way you're going to solve any problems or, or troubleshoot anything that pops up. Um, curiosity, creativity. I mean, my creativity is maybe in math, mm-hmm. you know, my creativity is, you know, seeing a global picture because in a, in a film or TV show, you have probably about 20 different departments and all those departments have to work together and they, all of them have to come together. And when you do a budget and you line by line by line in each of these budgets, you have to understand what each one means. 
you know, it'll take me a week to 10 days to do a, a, a one budget for one movie because I literally, in my brain, I'm producing the movie. I'm on set in my head thinking about what do I see and this one scene, the way it reads in the script, you're going to need rain. Okay, well, now I need special effects. I got to go back to the budget. I, do I have enough rain equipment? Do I have enough people labor to handle the rain equipment? And then you look in the script and like, oh, there's 10 days of rain. All right, let's make sure I have that in the line. So the budget is the, is the uh, number side of the creative script. Mm-hmm. Going back to the creativity and economics. Yes, of it. correct. The industry um, is famous for um, some of the characters, um, both in terms of famous producers and directors. Probably um, few as um, notable as James Cameron um, for his prolif- prolific work. Yeah. Um, and he seemed to have played, his family seemed to have played a red thread in your, in your journey, um, having now worked with him on a number of, um, a, a number of projects and looking at your website, um, your current website, um, you, there's a letter from James yes. Cameron. Yes, uh, he wrote me a reference letter, which, which quite, was surprising. Which, which is quite <laughs> incredible. So I would just love for you to discuss your experience and what you learned from working with someone with such a, fair to say, quite fastidious character mm. and, and, and yeah. a, an eye for detail. And also someone that probably straddles both the, the science and art side of the business. Um, just a little mm. quick background. So um, I produced all of Jim's uh, underwater documentaries. Ghost of the Abyss, Aliens of the Deep, Expedition Bismarck, and Last Mystery of the Titanic. That was from the year 2000 till 2005. But I've been uh, friends with the family, associated with the family, and popped in and out of their lives over the last 20 years. Uh, I became best friends with his brother, John. And I worked with John and his tech company, uh, Human Health Organization. So um, we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. So working with... Uh, we call him Jim. I mean, anyone that knows him, calls, he prefers Jim. Um, it made me a better producer because, you know, Jim is, uh, I, <laughs> I call him a tyrannical genius <laughs> because, you know, he knows exactly what he wants. And if you are not on the same page, then get the hell off the boat. That's basically the way it works. Or the summary. Yeah, it's a <laughs> summary. It's like, get the hell out if you don't want to be a part of this. Um, so... I was fired four times in five years. Three of the times had nothing to do with me just because I happened to be in the line of fire. Fourth time had everything to do with me because I didn't listen to what Jim wanted me to do. I had to do it a different way. I had to come up with a different solution. Because his wasn't efficient. No, his was extremely efficient, but Jim didn't have the real world knowledge of dealing with uh, governments. Um, Long story short, Jim sent me to France to go, you know, pick up two submarines, an entire warehouse full of underwater, you know, filming equipment and ship it back to Santa Barbara. Well, Jim wrote a 13 page manifesto that says you need to follow this page by page, line by line to make sure that, you know, my shit gets back to Santa Barbara. I said, yes, sir. No problem. So, um, you know, he gives me the list, leaves me. And now I have to figure this out. Um, I got, I got down to the page one and I was like, oh, this isn't going to work. So, um, I, I, I took what I could out of the 13 pages, which translated in about a page and a half. And I used that, but then 
you know, I had to use all of my knowledge and experience and I had to ask people and I had to figure out how to make things work and figure out how to, you know, do what he asked me to do. And again, as a producer, now all of a sudden I'm troubleshooting. I'm in, I'm in France. I'm in a foreign country. I'm dealing with Interpol because submarines are, you know, not your traditional thing that you're shipping. Uh, and then I'm dealing with naval intelligence in the U.S. and I'm dealing with the shipping companies. And I'm, I mean, the logistics alone were mind boggling. But again, as a producer, you have to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So I did on a timeline on a timeline. Yeah. yeah. A very difficult timeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim yelled, you know, Jim said, well, Chris, how long do you need? And I said, well, uh, eight weeks. And he was yelling. He's like, no, you have four. I'm like, okay, sure. I'm like, I don't know. So yeah, you give me four weeks, I'll try my best. Uh-huh. And I did. I mean, I figured out there was, you know, again, that's another podcast. So, so wait a minute. So you got them and he yeah. still fired you? Oh, no, no. He fired me because I didn't follow his manifesto. Oh, <laughs> no, no. So, so it was the end of the four weeks. We had the subs loaded. Everything was ready to go. Jim calls me and says, okay, you know, where are we? And I, I gave him the whole lowdown. He's like, great. Did you follow my instructions? I said, well, Jim, I did, but unfortunately some of them I couldn't because they didn't, you know, I had to deal with this and I, I gave him, hmm, I gave him excuses that weren't excuses. It was fact, mm. but there was a silence on the other end of the line. And then all of a sudden he just started screaming at me about, you know, I told you and he's yelling at me. I told you to do it. Did you follow any God damn it? You're fucking up. And he's just swearing at me and yelling at me. And, and then I hear the phone go dead. Uh, later, uh, Andrew, the producing partner calls me and says that, uh, he wanted to know what I told Jim. So I said to Andrew, Andrew, this is what I did. Step by step, line by line. We, we hit the, his timeline. We hit everything. I did it the way I had to do it. Not the way he asked me to do it. Because again, Jim, Jim doesn't ship things. He doesn't know how to do that. He knows how to make movies, great movies. But Andrew said to me, Chris, you did a great job. Listen, thank you so much. No one else really, you, you did an amazing feat. I, I couldn't, I didn't believe you could do it. Um, Take a week off, enjoy yourself. I'll talk to Jim. And then, you know, literally a week later, uh, I got an email from Jim telling me that, thank you so much. It was the best thing ever. You did a great job, Chris. Amazing. Get your ass back here. We got a lot of work to do. So, yeah. So, um, I I mean, I'm sure you being surrounded by the genius of someone like James Cameron, you must have um, absorbed and learned a lot. I did quite any, a bit. Are there any things that you could call out as being notable examples of experiences that made you a better person, a better producer that you would pass on to other producers? Yeah. Uh, one short. Or even aspiring directors. Yeah. No, no. There was one thing that Jim told me that really sat with me. He said, Chris, it's that one $5 part that you forgot to buy that will shut down a $10 million production. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he was literally serious, but he was also, you know, he's doing as a figurative analogy as saying that, you know, detail is everything. Detail is God in this world. If you can be more detailed than everyone else, then you'll have a leg up on everyone. So, so aspiring producers, aspiring directors, it's detail. You, you do your work, do your research. 
find out every angle, find out every bit that you can about whatever you want to make or produce so that no one can come at you, you know, with something that you didn't think about. That that's basically what I got. Do you see that as a common trait in great directors you worked with? Um, yeah, or I think directors. so. I mean, I devil's advocate. We had, um, Taylor Hackford. Mm-hmm. Taylor's amazing. He was very, very detail oriented. Jim, very detail oriented. Um, Costa Gavras, when we did Mad City, very detail-oriented. I mean, yeah, so I do, I see that as a trait. Mm-hmm. Before we talk about your work with, the really important work you did with um, James Cameron's brother, John, John David, I think it is. John David, JD, John David, yeah. yeah. They call um, him Dave. <laughs> you um, you shot in Ireland in 2019. Green Knight, yeah. The Green Knight. Love um, that. Yeah, um, with Dev Patel. Yeah. Um, and... I shot in Ireland and I had a lot of times and the weather can be um, unpredictable at the best of times. It often leads you to be in pubs drinking Guinness, which is something mm-hmm. that can't be planned for, but is thoroughly enjoyable. Um, can you just recount your experience on that? Because it's a, why, why did they choose Ireland? Um, and what was your experience of it looking back and what did you learn from that that? Massive production. Yeah. Um, so I, I came on the Green Knight as a, um, let's call it production executive. Um, Tim Heddington is, uh, uh, investor out of Dallas. Um, he did a lot of Martin Scorsese's movies. He did Hugo. He did Aviator. Um, I met Teresa at uh, a producer's guild event. Teresa works for Tim and they said they needed someone to, you know, be their eyes and ears on the ground. Uh, and Tim gave a lot of money and, uh, you know, that's common, you know, whenever you have a distribution entity that's, you know, paying for a production or, or some investor is paying for the production, they, they want to have their own people on the ground just to report back. Um, so the, from what I gather, I didn't do any of the scouting. So they, I know they scouted many different countries, excuse me, but they came up with Ireland just because Ireland had the castles we wanted. Ireland had the weather. You brought up okay. weather. Most of the green night takes place and it's raining, which was awesome. It was sun that we were having problems with. <laughs> when it was sunny, we we're like, Oh shit, it's rain. It's sunny out. We need, we carried rain towers with us just in case for those reasons. But, uh, the weather was awesome for what the green night was. Um, the country of Ireland also has probably one of the best tax incentive programs in the world. Um, they were amazing with that. The crews are almost, you know, you know, ESP, they all have ESP with each other. You, you know, you know, I was watching the grips and electric set up crane shots with the camera guys and, and it was just like the, it was a dance and they had, they had it choreographed perfectly. So, and the Irish people are so nice and so cool. And, and they have a training program, which is amazing. Uh, they put trainees on in each of the different departments and that's what builds their uh, crew base. Mm-hmm. So I I'd, I'd go to Ireland any any time of the year. I'd love I'm that. I'm going to come back and ask you uh in relation to that what you're doing now in Texas. Um and your vision for where production might be in Texas. But before we do, in 2020 you had a pretty significant pivot. Oh yes. Um and and an important pivot working with um JD uh John David Cameron and his human health organization where you start producing PPE um and testing um, for productions, because I think everyone's view, while we were all in front of our screens and televisions, ab- absorbing anything we could from Netflix, HBO, and Hulu, you were out probably on 
productions helping people produce content through the adversity that was um that's correct yes so how did this come about and what what was the experience like um okay again confronting fear and and risk taking at a different level well it all started john david cameron jim's baby brother he calls me up in may i think it's beginning of may and says dude i need your help we need to get jim up and running with avatar two and three jim's in new zealand shooting down there and uh john had a tech company where he was um he created a new vaping device that uses water and cold vape so um it's a new way to do it but during that time he had a lot of john had a lot of chinese factories online that we were manufacturing different bits and bobs and pieces so he calls up one of the factories and they put online for jim to get ppe to New Zealand. And this is when everyone was struggling trying to find masks and booties and gloves and the whole this thing. So um we were able to put online all of the all of the PPE Jim needed for Avatars 2 and 3. Wow. That was the fr- he was one of the first productions in the and globe get, to get start. it to New Zealand. To get it to New Zealand. Yeah. Presumably South Island with Avatar. Right. Yeah. Well, during that time, John also thought um it would be a good idea to create a medical board so that we could also do testing, rapid testing for um, all the, you know, our crews for everybody in, in the film and TV business. First of all, John wanted to test the United States. He wanted me to call all the governors around the country and say, Chris, call each governor and let them know that we're going to get testing. We're going to do testing for them. And I'm like, yeah, that's a little big right now. Why don't we stick to our community? Why don't we stick to film and TV? I know film and TV. I know a lot. I know all the networks. I know studios. I know I got people everywhere. Let, let's start there. And John was like, yeah, okay, start there. So we had, you know, four doctors on a medical board and they started acquiring rapid tests. We were able to acquire over 20,000 rapid tests prior to the government taking them away from the private sector. Wow. So we had those available. Um, during that time, I was writing up protocols for, you know, net, I have one show at Netflix my friend was doing and, uh, they were going on the road. So I wrote their protocols and Netflix adopted my the, there were no protocols. protocols at that time. Cause no, the there AC weren't. Didn't well, the unions were just starting. They were, they were starting to create theirs. I mean, I created this protocols back, you know, in April when the first pandemic first struck because I figured somebody's going to have to figure this out. Um, so. I created these uh, a whole set of protocols I sent to John. John sent to Jim. Uh, Jim loved half of them, which was fine. He adopted half of what I wrote. And then, you know, I sent it out to a couple other friends and I sent it to, and I created a program for Netflix for going on the road, the little cooking show they had. So, um, Netflix adopted my program. Then they, they were the first ones that bought tests from us. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it was Lionsgate. I, I knew uh, Kevin Beggs, who was the chairman of Lionsgate Television. So I said to Kevin, we have access to these tests. And he they hired a group called CTEH, which is a pandemic response company. So we met, we did multiple conversations with them. And finally, uh, they bought like 20,000 tests roughly from us uh, in order to keep all the Lionsgate productions in compliance and keep everyone safe and keep everyone working. So that started the human health organization's pivot into PPE and testing. Um, both John and Jim told me just only go to film and TV because right now that I think that's probably where we can help the most. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, I called everybody else up and I literally, my phone could not stop ringing. There were three vendors approved to do testing on the SAG white sheets that came out. My name was one of them or a human health organization with my name, my cell phone, my email. And uh, so we started at purchase order number one, zero, zero, zero. Okay. Purchase orders equate to clients, Mm -hmm. equate to productions that we provide tests for. When we were finished October of last year, we hit one eight four five productions. Wow, productions! So we had over eight hundred and forty five productions, roughly. So people when we watch shows that were produced during that time, what was going on in the background in terms of? Oh my God! Just utter. Masking, it was like it was crazy. Distancing. Yep. Uh, COVID coordinators popped up everywhere. Um, production coordinators, help PAs, um, all kinds of people. It created a whole new job, basically, that some unions were going to adopt and take into because there were so many that were needed. Each production had one to two to three to four or five coordinators, depending on the size of the production. And, yeah. and then presumably having to deal with people that were getting COVID on the production. Well, there were protocols. Finally, the unions came out with their version of their protocols and, uh, you know, Luckily, we had four wonderful doctors that we were working with, and they were teaching us all the different things that we had to deal with when we go out to set. Uh, We were admin, and then we hired a nurse corps, which was a nursing, excuse me, nursing staffing company. Holly Collinsworth, she lives up in Taylor, Texas. She uh, came on and she devised the entire program for us. So we were compliant every step of the way because we had actually nurse practitioners on set. We had, we had our people doing the admin version. So, I mean, we figured out a way just to crank like a hundred people in an hour and it was, it, it worked. It worked great. And we stayed very bit, very, very busy. Wow. It's incredible. One of the, of the untold stories. Of the oh, there are many untold stories of COVID. I, we had one experience where a director from London tested positive. They were the, she was the only person that tested positive on the whole shoot. And it was like this, you know, $2 million commercial. And the producers were freaking out because they couldn't lose the director. So I suggested that they isolate her in a van out in the middle of the parking lot. In that van, put a, a walkie-talkie and a couple of monitors and give her, you know, a way to communicate the set. So that, you know, she was the only one in the van um, and they basically were able to shoot the commercial with her completely 100% isolated from the entire crew. She was asymptomatic. She wasn't sick, but she tested positive for COVID. But we, I figured, I basically went to the producer and say, this is what you're going to need to do. Quite a lot of crew would like to do that with some directors. Oh, yeah. <laughs> going oh yeah. There's a new protocol. But you see, again, the, even the COVID testing mm-hmm. is part of my experience and part of my life as a producer mm. you have to troubleshoot everything yeah. you have to figure out what is the best way to do it in the safest manner okay well we're in texas you moved here on january 6th this year and you're already creating a degree of impact you've got your business um which is civilized production company for civilized entertainment. entertainment yeah first of all um the impossible network is the belief with got this thought that you know nothing is impossible and you've got a line which says everything and anything is possible so it resonated when i read that um, but you've also created something called the Texas Media Coalition. Texas isn't a place that people would immediately think about as a production hub. And you talk about Ireland. But you've got plans 
Could you maybe just expand on what you're doing with sure. that and your and your vision for Texas? Well, I mean, in Texas, everything's bigger, right? I mean, Texas is like should be the biggest, most powerful state in the country. Well, um, the plan that I have is to basically bring more economy to Texas, more business. Mm. And that business happens to be film and television. Um, California, Georgia, New York, even Oklahoma have better tax incentive programs than the state of Texas. When I first landed here and I started looking over everything, I Georgia, the Atlanta, Georgia, 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 Atlanta, Savannah, any most of the cities in Georgia, yeah. But Atlanta because they have Marvel and other Disney and stuff. Yeah. Um, so basically, when I landed, I, I reviewed the uh, the Texas tax incentive program, and it, it's limiting. It's minimal. It's nothing, really. If the state of Texas is is the biggest, baddest frickin' state in the country, then why is why is this the way it is? I have a, a plan to bring you know more economy to the state because film and TV productions, we may be like a circus, but we're our own ecosystem when it comes to money. Mm-hmm. Imagine a $10 million movie comes to shoot and they have to build sets. So they're going to spend a million dollars at Home Depot or at various, you know, wood, you know, wood supplying, construction compliant, you know, they're going to hire the labor. They're going, you know, wardrobe, wardrobe's going to spend half a million dollars on, on buying clothes. They're going to buy, you know, if it's based in Texas, they're going to go to Texas stores mm-hmm. and they're going to spend the money in Texas. Let's say you have a $15 million movie that's going to spend $10 million in Texas and they get almost nothing in return. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to come and do that. Why would they come here if they can go to Georgia, they can go to Oklahoma, they can go to California, they can go to other places and get money back. So the plan is that you bring in business, you give them a tax incentive to bring in their business, and thus you will create more business. And these tax incentives will stay in the state of Texas, and they will go to businesses that need a tax break. That's the idea. So what are you doing to affect those changes in policy at the state level? Uh, I met with the Texas Film Commission, and they they love the idea. They can't really lobby that much for it, but they're going to uh, at least point me in the right direction. Uh, tell me what legislators I need to talk to. Tell me what things I need to be careful about. Tell me what how to you know guide the waters a little bit, even though that they can't really mm-hmm. lobby. And and I understand that it's politics. I understand, but they're they're happy that I'm willing to to take the charge. Uh-huh. But presumably, I mean, within the sort of the state capital, which is only a few miles from here, there's probably a lot of individuals that would be very open to something that could stimulate and accelerate the economy of Texas. Absolutely, and that's what we're hoping. Uh-huh. That's what I'm hoping. Wow. Well, certainly, um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes and, and look forward to seeing what happens. <laughs> It'd be great to see Texas turn into the sort of the new Hollywood. Um, well, well, hold on. I'm not, I'm not so sure new Hollywood. Oh, okay. I don't want to call it new Hollywood. Ah, okay. The idea is economy first. Okay. Okay. Whether it's Hollywood, whether it's any business anywhere else, it doesn't really, that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Is it what matters is that more business and more money is being spent in the state of Texas. So similar to exactly going back to Ireland in yeah. terms of how Ireland sort of created a, a way to for Correct. investment and yeah, and, and you don't see the economy. You don't look at Ireland as Hollywood. No. Nobody ever does. No. They keep it pretty, you know, down on in the down low. 
But when you go in there and you want to shoot there, they basically will open their doors mm-hmm. wide and say, come spend your money, please. Yeah. Um, I'm also creating in Texas uh, the, to go along with the tax incentive program, a training program, very similar to Island, mm-hmm. which uh, will then create a crew base so that we, you know, the kids that are graduating from film school or whatever, they go to L.A. Yeah. They'll go to Georgia. They'll go to New York. They go to Florida even for that. So why can't we keep them here working and keep everybody busy? Yeah. No, that makes total sense. And uh, so rather than just Austin being the, the new tech hub becoming a, a sort of a... I think all of Texas needs to be bigger and badder than they've ever been. Yeah. They, and we're at the place now where that should be happening. Yeah, definitely agree. Well, in terms of the, the way ahead, um, and everything you've talked about, clearly producers and you yourself um, are in the process of lifelong learning making new friends, connections. Um, we're approaching an interesting t- time in the, in the US um, about what's going to happen in 2024. Do you ever think a producer could run? We've had, obviously, Arnold Schwarzenegger um, run. And well, he was an actor. <laughs> an a- so was Ronald Reagan. An actor. Yeah. And Ronald Reagan. We've had a reality TV star, Donald Trump, become president. Could you see a producer ever becoming president? In, in today's world, anybody can com- become yeah. president. I don't think... Uh, of course, a producer could become president. Sure, another a comedian could become president. Well, look at Zelensky. Zelensky. Yeah. You know, I mean, I have a friend of mine. Uh, his name is Mike Marino, and he wants to run in twenty twenty four. Make America Italian again is his slogan. <laughs> He's a Jersey Italian yeah. guy, but he has a lot of good points. I mean, I'm like, hey, I I, I could think about voting for you if. He took it maybe a little bit more seriously <laughs> than a comedian, but yeah, anybody can run for president. Okay. Trump showed us that. All right. Well, we'll maybe see you 2028. No, you're not. I'm not right. Oh, yeah. oh, no, no, no. Okay. So in that case, then next 10 years, um, mm-hmm. if all the work you've done and where you'd like to see things, the entertainment business go, we're, I mean, we, t- we could do a podcast completely separately about the changing composition of the entertainment industry and everything's happened with tech and platforms and, and, what do you think we're going to be 10 years from now? I think 10 years from now, that's a very good question. We'll be all digital, obviously. I mean, there will be no more celluloid, unfortunately. Um, and if there was, it'd be a specialty thing. I think social media has played such an important role in everything, whether we want it to be or not. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to start seeing a lot more social media you know, stars come up. Mm-hmm. Influencers will start getting movie deals. The theater will always be there i mean we all need a place to immerse ourselves and get lost into whatever worlds you're looking at um avatar two and three i'm going to give them a plug you're no one has ever seen anything like avatar two before um, you will when will you, that be released that'll be, uh, supposedly this year but i don't know jim will release it when he's ready <laughs> so it could be this year it could be next year but the majority of it i heard is underwater I was on say he gave me a tour on set a long time ago and it I what I saw was just phenomenal. I mean I can't wait. I can't even tell you what two and three is gonna be like. And then he's got plans for four, five, and six. Oh my goodness. Yeah, he uh, he had mentioned to someone he was gonna die on Pandora. Can you imagine if Peter Jackson and um and James got together? <laughs> they are. Oh they so, are well that where do you think Jim is? He's in New Zealand. But uh, Weta is doing Avatar. Uh, Jim moved him and his entire family to New Zealand. I see. Oh yeah. So oh, wow, can't wait. Wh- whether you know it or whether any of us know yeah. or not, they're 
working together regardless in, in some way. Wow. Okay. Final question before we get to the quick fires. Um, what do you want your legacy to be? Good question. Uh, I'm still single. I don't have kids. Um, although uh, I was, uh, for six years, I was the vice president of production at a company called E1. Mm-hmm. I used to call them my kids <laughs> because <laughs> in reality TV, the majority of people you hire are much younger. So, uh, but as far as a legacy goes, I just want to keep doing cool shit and go on a great adventures, you know? Um, and Texas, I'd like to see, you know, things change and develop more and grow. Huh. I love startups. You know, the E1 thing that I did as a VP was a startup. I mean, E1's not a startup company. They're a billion dollar company, but the division we started was considered a startup. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the human health organization, the way we pivoted, that was a startup. My Little Civilized Entertainment, that's a startup. The Texas Media Coalition, that's a startup. So what I like doing is like creating the startups and then just having them thrive and just go off the charts. Mm. Did you ever um, follow up with Martin Baker after your 10 years? Martin and I talked many times. Yeah. Um, there was a point where Martin and I partnered on a couple of projects. I was trying to help him sell a few. Mm. And that was a joy for me. Yeah, I really enjoyed yeah. that. I think Martin's retired by now because he's a little older now. Mm. So. Okay. Well, quick five questions. Um, what principles do you stand by? <laughs> Attitude and acceptance, <laughs> 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 honesty, loyalty. Um, you know, all the traditional. I mean, I I don't consider myself one of the Hollywood douchebaggy kind of guys. I won't stab somebody in the back, and unfortunately, I'm brutally honest to the point of pissing people off. Mm-hmm. So um, that's I. I if you're going to ask me a question, I'm going to give you an honest answer, whether you like it or not. Good. Um, must be a bit Dutch in you. Polish, actually. <laughs> oh, okay, right. Hard choices. Um, you must have had to make quite a few. Um, which have you made that turned out to be the right decision? Oh my God! Uh, just getting into this business. Yeah, that. I mean, those are the hardest choices of all. Yeah, um, yeah. I actually had one one choice that was interesting. While I was working for Jim, uh, we had a screening of one of our docs, and he invited the producers of Spider Man Three. So. uh after the screening, the producers from Spider-Man 3 come up to me and say, Chris, we would like to hire you as the production supervisor on the Spider-Man 3. And I was ecstatic. I was like, oh, my God, this is great. Well, when does it start? He goes, oh, we need you to start next week. I was right in the middle of a production with Jim. And I said to them, uh, I can't. I mean, I, I'm working for Jim. And then, you know, I, yeah, he they goes, listen, after we leave here, we're, we're, we're not going to give you this offer again. You know, and then they said, we'll make you a producer on Spider-Man, like associate producer on Spider-Man 3. And I was just shaking. I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then I realized who Jim was and what he is. And I said, I'm not doing that. Jim, he values loyalty as much as I value loyalty. So I'm like, I'm going to have to pass. Later, I found out they did that to everybody that worked for Jim. They were trying to poach all of Jim's people just to say they stole Jim's people. Wow. So uh, that was a hard decision to make at the time, but later it was the best decision to make. Yeah, yeah great. So validation, uh, yeah. loyalty. Um, where'd you go to discover new ideas? I work with a company called uh, Roadmap Writers. Uh, so I mentor a lot of writers. So they pitch me things all the time. Ideas come from everywhere. You know, f- you know, friends, family, you know, it's like comedians that come up with jokes. Mm-hmm. Where do they find their jokes? Real world, real world life, you know. 
I haven't been as creative as I want to. I'm doing a lot more of the finance stuff with the media coalition and some other things. So, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Uh, I see sort of a different side of life in Texas, so expect a few. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, what's one big problem that's really worth solving? Uh, humanity, just being human. I mean, what's happening in the Ukraine is, you know, we're in World War Three. I don't care what anybody says. Oh, yeah, this is, sure. it's Cold War, mm-hmm. you know, for us. You know, the Ukrainians are, he's basically destroying the entire, the whole country. They'll have nothing to go back to. Yeah. I think that was his point. But for me, it's what we are and who we are trying to change change our thought process. If you can change people like Putin or, or you know, the Chinese president or, or even the North Korean guy, yeah, that's the biggest problem of all. Mm. Okay. Um, you could bring four people from history to dinner to help you solve for a better planet, maybe solve that problem. Who would they be? Oh, please. That's a rough question. My God, I don't know. Four people from history. I mean, as a producer, I mean, you must have come across some great problems. Oh, yeah. Well, to- I mean, Jim, first of all, Jim's a scientist and an engineer. He'd be the, you know, the, Jim my, around the table. Okay. Yeah. He'd be around the table. Um, uh, there was some Martin Baker. I bring him because yeah. he had such a cool demeanor about him and he knew how to do a lot of things. Um, Robert Hansen, he's my business partner. He does, we do a podcast called yeah, The Artist Thing Show. That, Robert's one of the top hackers in the world. He has a brain like I've never seen before. So, you know, he and Jim got along very well. So I would bring him. Well, let's leave it at that. Then. Leave it at that, okay. please. Yeah. All right. Um, is there a question no one asks you that you wish they would? Um, Could be about your experience. Yeah. You know, what's funny is I have a big mouth. So even if someone doesn't ask me a question, I will still bring it. I will give them the answer whether they ask me or not. So <laughs> not, not really. anyone say that before. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, impossible question. What would your advice be to someone, maybe looking back at where you were when you were about to graduate, not graduate, but people are telling them around them, giving them advice. Maybe you aren't as strong-minded as you were. Don't do it. It's impossible. Anything's possible. Um, you just have to... Take advantage of every door that opens. And in the beginning, I said yes to everything because that's the only way you're going to learn. I attitude and acceptance were the two key, you know, key things I kept thinking about. And, and just know who you are. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you don't have a strong self confidence, then try to find something that you can feel safe doing and then learn from that until you can get to that next level. I had nothing to lose. I needed to a job. I needed to, I, I was in Florida and I didn't want to go back to Pennsylvania. And that's a very strong way to live. I mean, you, I had to make those decisions. I wanted to. Do you think good producers engineer opportunity? Absolutely. A hundred percent. Cause you mentioned about open every door, but it sounds like you create doors as well. Well, you have to put yourself into an environment that things can happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't always work for everybody. I know that. I was lucky and blessed that I, I, able, I was able just to, to sneak my way into pretty much anything. I mean, Spielberg, when he, he snuck on the lot, that's how he got a break. You know, so, you, you know, up and comers, you just got to put yourself in alignment or in position or just keep bugging people. Mm-hmm. Don't be a dick about it. Be nice. Be polite. Be courteous and, and professional smile mm-hmm. and network and try to be friends with everybody if you can. That's great. Advice. That's what I did. Um, 
Final three questions. Best recent TV series or film? Um, the Marvelous Mrs. Mizell. Oh, yes. Yeah, I've watched the first series. Uh, oh, should I catch up with It's one of my favorite shows on TV. Yeah? I love it. It was great. Yeah, they filmed um, the department store scene opposite where I was living in Williamsburg. Nice. And it was great to see them all in costume and fit yeah. this costume. Um, you probably read a lot of screenplays. Yes. And there's some great screenplays that maybe haven't been adapted that well to tell television and film is there any screenplay that you think someone should read oh my god i mean that there's one that you look back and think that wasn't yeah i wrote one it's called jersey transit i won the hoboken film festival with that best unproduced screenplay nice and it's available oh well if somebody wants to fund it sure (laughs) (laughs) i'm not going to just send it to anybody you know Mm -hmm. but yeah i i mean well i mean that's a hard question Mm -hmm. um there were a lot of movies. Devil's Advocate, when I worked on that, that was a screenplay I really enjoyed reading. You saw that? I saw it. I, it, was, yeah. it was a great, great screenplay. Uh-huh. Um, even Titanic. Mm-hmm. I actually, Jim doesn't know this, I have a copy of one of his first original scripts that I found in a drawer at Light Store. Wow. <laughs> and it has his handwritten notes in pencil on it. I put it in my bag and just kind of walked out <laughs> with it. Anyway, that was, I actually read, you know, I watched the movie Titanic and was, and took the script that I found and was following it. I'm like, Oh wow, he cut that. Oh, he changed that. Like, Oh, it was, that was actually one of the most fascinating, you know, I had to do this over like two nights because it was so long, (laughs) but, um, that was a screenplay I really enjoyed. Okay. All right. And final question. We always ask our guests, who should we interview next? Robert Hansen. My yeah, hacker like friend. Like plan, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he uh yeah, he's a wealth of knowledge. Yeah. He's he's been through a lot of interesting experiences. Sometimes more than me. Excellent. Just different. All right. Well we'll we'll wrap up there and, okay. um, and just thank you very much for your time, Chris. Oh, you're very welcome. And, and yeah, I think of hearing your story firsthand and just uh acknowledge you for um I think you said uh your honesty, but brutal candor, maybe. Is a better brutal way. candor. I like that. I'll use that. Your brutal candor, um, your no bullshit attitude, being a rule breaker, and just having the confidence in yourself and to embrace the attitude and acceptance of everything that comes your way. Absolutely. Now, being a rule breaker is good, but you also have to know what the rules are and bend them as much as you can. Ah, you don't okay. always have to break them. Okay, so you, you manipulate them. Okay. Let's put it that a better way. way of putting it. I hate saying the word manipulate, but yeah. Cool. Well, we'll leave it there. Okay. Look forward to the presidential run. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. Or not. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's a different forecast. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. That's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please either follow, download, or subscribe on your preferred podcast player. We'd also appreciate a rating and a review as it helps more people find us. And if you have a guest you think we should interview, just email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com or message us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. This is a Fabrica Collective production. So have a great week and we'll be back next time with another inspiring guest on The Impossible Network. 